I know that we've all heard the phrase, a picture is worth a thousand words, right? Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a cliche adage. But I think in part, one of the reasons why that sticks with us is because we are created to respond to visual cues. God has made us to be visual creatures where we see things and we, we respond to them. I was recently reminded of, of this adage uh, as after my dad had passed, my sister and I were going through a box of old pictures and looking at pictures of my childhood, looking at pictures of my dad's childhood and uh, being flooded with uh, memories and images of my childhood, being reminded of uh, fun vacations as a family, also reminded of hard times as a family, um, also reminded of just the, the brokenness in my own family. But one of the things that I realized, not recently, but probably in the last three years, is one of the things I hate most in this world is taking pictures. I'm, I'm the worst at them. I don't have an eye for them, and so I usually let other people take pictures for me. But one of the reasons why I don't take pictures, again, just because I'm not very good at it, but I wish that I was good because the point of a picture is to capture a memory, to capture a feeling, to capture uh, 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 an emotion. And so uh, if I was good at taking pictures, I know that there are just certain things in life that we need to remember, that we need to capture. And I, I'm reminded of that just some nights before life group begins, and I see our, our community just loving each other. I see our community just having conversations, and those are times that I want to, to take a picture I want to look back and I want to reflect on the community that we had. And I want to be reminded of, uh, of, of a community and the friendships that we forged. Uh, not just now, but ten years from now. It's so easy to forget uh, the, when we form community that we, 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 we lose sight or we forget of the, the friendships we forged. We forget of the times that we've laughed together. We forget the times that we've wept together. We forget the times that we rejoice together. And so if I was any good at taking pictures, I know that that would be a time to do that. And so I've been coming to realize that there's more to our Christian faith than Sunday mornings. There's more to our Christian faith than Monday evenings for my life group or Tuesday or Wednesday evenings or even Sunday evenings for your group. But I've been realizing that our faith in Christ places us with other believers trying to navigate the brokenness of our world. And that's part of what community is for. And it's for all of us who profess Jesus Christ as Lord. We've been adopted as sons and daughters of God. And that means that we are part of the family of God. That means that we are part of the community of faith. But it raises the question, why community? And so over the course of the last two months, we've been focusing on, uh, on our gospel-centered life series. And at the heart of the series, we've seen that the gospel gives us a new identity on the basis of Christ's work. It's not our own work. It's nothing that we did that attained this new relationship. It's nothing that we've done to attain this new identity. We have nothing to pay off. We have nothing to work towards, or we ha- haven't worked towards this. But, our, but simply, our new identity comes through placing our hope 
and our faith in Jesus Christ. So at the point of faith, we are given this new identity. And so this new identity impacts everything. It impacts the way we work. It impacts the way that we uh, give. It impacts the way that we relate to each other. But this new identity also causes us to live, to live differently. And so my son, Tobias, he's three and a half years old. If you ask him what his name is, he's very excited to tell you that his name is Tobias. It's not dude, it's not bro, it's Tobias. He's also very happy to tell you sometimes, on a rare occasion, that his last name is Heed. So he'll say, my name is Tobias Heed. And since he's Heed, there's certain expectations for him on how he's supposed to live. I'm still trying to figure out the bulk of what that means, but I do know that he's expected to love potatoes and cheese. Doesn't matter how it's served, Heeds must love those two food staples. And so he does love those, so he is a Heed. Seriously, though, I'm still trying to figure out what that means for Tobias, what it means to be a Heed. And so right now, he's three and a half, so the concepts are very basic. Right now, it's uh, to be a Heed means you're not mean to people. Uh, you're not mean to people by pushing your sister down the stairs. You're not mean to people by hitting people. You're not mean to people by, uh, by saying mean things to them or, or yelling at them. This is very basic for a three-and-a-half-year-old. Uh, but clearly, uh, I know that, or in, in the positive, we also know that he's are supposed to take care of the people who are not as big as us. So clearly, we, we, I still need to work more on, on identifying what the expectations are for him as my son, as a heed. But here are some, here's some good news for all of you. You're not heeds. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> but, but what you are is you all have a new identity in Christ. For when you've placed your faith in Christ, you have a new identity in Christ. And so as a result, you are sons and daughters of God. You have all of the benefits of being sons and daughters of God. Really, your last name is, is Christian. And there's expectations on how you are to live. But not only are there expectations, but you also get all the benefits of being part of the family of God. You have a new relationship with God. It's instant. It's unrestricted access to God at any time. We see in, in Hebrews 4 that we are to enter the throne room of grace with boldness, with confidence. And so we have that instant access to God that he hears us and he listens to us. Uh, and uh, the expectation is that we do live differently, but we are expected to live in the context of a family. We're expected to live in the context of, uh, of the church. The family of God and the church are, are synonymous. But why the church? Why can't I just live out my faith on my own? In the past, I've struggled with similar questions. And I think to, 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 to find some of these answers, I think we need to see what what we see in Scripture. We see clearly in Genesis 2.18 that God's plan for humanity has always been community. Genesis 2.18 says this, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I I will make a helper fit for him. See, before sin entered the world, God made all things good. took him seven days. At the end of each day, God said, 
this is good. And so God has created the world in seven days, and he's declaring everything good, everything is right, everything is perfect. And then man was tasked with naming the animals. And so as as man is, is sitting there and he's watching all of these animals go by, I think at some point he lost some of his creativity. He's like, ah, it's flying. It's a fly. Uh, it's, and so he, he's he probably lost some of his creativity in naming the animals. But one thing he does recognize is as he sees these animals going in pair, he sees them in, in herds, in community, he begins to feel isolated. He begins to feel alone and lonely. And so then God declares that not good. And so uh, it exposed his need for something greater. It exposed his need for friendship and community. And so after God made woman, God declared all creation good. Both man and woman were naked and unashamed. And as Pastor Kevin has said, that's one of his favorite verses. Um, But... But what it means at its core is that they, they had perfect community. They had perfect intimacy with each other. There was perfect unity. They were complete. There was open transparency. There was nothing hidden between the two. And more importantly, they brought everything they had for each other. It was complete and unwavering selflessness. But you read the next chapter, chapter Genesis chapter 3, and things take a a, a turn. Sin is now entered into the world. And so now man is broken by his sin. His perfection, his, his completion is now marred. It's broken. He no longer had that intimacy and community with God that he shared in Genesis 1 and 2. He no longer had that perfect community with woman. And so his community is broken. He still has that community. He still has the ability to relate to her, but now it's different. And we see a steep contrast when in Genesis 2 they were naked and unashamed. In Genesis 3 they, were, they realized they were naked and they were ashamed. And so what it means is that at that point, jealousy, envy, selfishness, these all became the norm for community. That, that it wasn't just for those two, but it, it has plagued every generation since. That every generation since is, is plagued by broken community. But since we are created in the image of God, we, our natural tendency is to flock towards people who are like us. We still desire that community. We still desire to find that community that God has created us for. We look for friends at work. We look for friends at school. We find neighbors in our neighborhood. If we love books, we tend to flock towards people who also love books, that we form a book club together. But the reality is is that community looks different for everybody because God has created everybody differently. And so we long to have that healthy community restored that we see in Genesis 2. And there's nothing inherently wrong about these communities. It's relating how God has created us to relate to others. But at the end of the day, in some form, these communities leave us wanting. They leave us desiring for more. Whether, it's, uh, whether we realize it or not, they, we always have this 
hunger for something more from our communities. And so, because Christ has called us to the family of God, we belong to each other. As family members, we are all on the same playing field. We see throughout the New Testament that there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave or free, uh, who we all have, have the same identity. And so for us, regardless of our wealth, regardless of our social status, regardless of our education, our race, our gender, our life experiences, what we've done or what we haven't done, we all belong to the family of God with no distinction. And so as part of the family of God, we, we are expected to be part of the community. Christ expects us to be part of the family of God that has lasted 2,000 years. While the family of God looks different now than it did then, we are all united in the unchanging message of redemption. We all have, we, we still have the same gospel message. We have the same Christ. We have the same mission, the same purpose. We have the same identity in Christ. We have the same faith. And we're all here because of the life-transforming message of the gospel. Our new community in Christ is the family of God. It's the church, the body of Christ. We, we have all three of those terms throughout the New Testament. They're not different. They're the same. They are different ways to relate to each other. And so God places us in the family of God because he loves us and he knows what's best for us. And what's best for us is to be in community, is to be part of the church. But what exactly is the church. Simply put, every single Christian who puts their faith, uh, they belong to Christ and to the church. The church falls into two distinct categories throughout Scripture, the global church and the local church. So hold on here, we're going to go through this quickly. So the global church is called that because it doesn't have a street address. You can't plug in GPS coordinates and find the global church. The church uh, has no physical building. And there are two clear facts about the global church. The first is that Christ established the church through his sacrifice. Ephesians 2.13 says this, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So God instituted the church for his glory and his purposes through Christ's redemptive work on the cross. And he continues to use the church to bring people to know him. This is, this is globally. And the second clear thing that we see about the global church is that every person throughout human history have, who have put their trust in Christ, this consists of all believers who have put their trust in Christ, past, present, future, and all have been saved from their sins. 2 Corinthians 15, or 5 17 says this, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed. The new has come. And then Romans 8.15 says, For all who are led by the Holy Spirit of God are sons of God. So, if you had a great-grandpa who believed Christ, he's part, of the local, he's part of the global church. If you have a distant cousin, twice removed, who has placed her faith in Christ, she's part of the global church. The apostles, Paul, Peter, John, they're part of the global church. 
the Christians in Spain being ministered to by Emily Roth, one of our missionaries. They are part of the global church. The Acts 29 network, which we, Restoration Church, are part of, is a church planting network which has planted over 700 churches in the world. They are part of the global church. And so when we were saved, we joined the global church also. When uh, we are united in Christ through that. And as a result, we have more in common with believers in Iraq than people in America who want nothing to do with God. This is the, the transformative nature of the gospel, that we are connected to all believers everywhere. And so we are part of the family of God. So all believers everywhere are united in Christ because of Christ's ministry. This is the global church. But we're not just part of the global church. We're part of the local church. And so what is the local church? The local church is a group of professing believers in Jesus Christ who meet in a specific location on a regular basis to worship God and encourage other, uh, other believers. So there's some key words here. We see group, so it's specific. We see uh, meet in a specific location. Again, specific, on a regular basis, to worship God and encourage other believers. We can't encourage other believers if we don't know who other believers are. So the local church represents the global church with a specific address and a specific location. Restoration Church is an example of the local church. We are here, we meet every week, we worship together, we are able to encourage each other, and we are here uh, for each other. And so the New Testament as a whole supports the local church, supports the idea of the local church. The book of Acts demonstrates churches in Jerusalem, in Samaria, in Judea, in Antioch, and, of course, many others. We see from Acts 13 through 18, Paul's commission to go and plant churches. He plants churches in Ephesus. He plants churches in in, uh, Corinth. He plants churches just all over uh, uh, the Middle East. But we also have three clear marks of what a local church consists of as early as Acts 2, when the church was formed. Uh, right after Pentecost. And certainly these aren't all the marks that the church is, but considering that this is the first church, we're shown elements of what a local church is. We see in Acts 2.42 that they were committed to work to the word of God and to prayer. In Acts 2.43, we see the church was committed to exercising the spiritual gifts. In Acts 2, and, and then finally we see that the church was committed to each other in community. We see that in 2. Uh, 42 and 244. They, they were committed to the breaking of bread and they were committed to having a community with each other. So we need to recognize that God's will for every Christian is to be committed to a local church. That means that we strive to make one local church our home. The, the reality is, is we can't have meaningful community if our attention is split between multiple congregations. We can't be invested with one another if we are, are going to multiple churches. But why exactly does God expect us to be a community in a local church? Because the Christian life at its core is designed for community. And we can only truly find community when we bring everything we have for each other. See, Christianity is not 
has never been, what can I get from Christ? Or what can I get from others? Christianity has always been, what can I give to others that God has already given me? So no better example of this comes to mind than a single older gal who made restoration her home in her final, in her final year of life. Um, Nancy Hyman sat right over there every week. And she moved to Yakima in her, in her 60s. She knew no one. She had no friends. She had no family. She had no community. And she lived here for 15 years. And then she finally found restoration, and and she knew restoration was her home. And so after she joined restoration, uh, she gave everything she had to our church. She was on a very fixed income, and yet she continued to give her time. Uh, She continued to give everything she had to our church. Um, She started bringing snacks. No one prompted her to do that. She just felt that she needed to contribute to the body of Christ. And so she would bring snacks. Uh, She'd buy supplies for our coffee ministry. And she just, again, no one told her she needed to do this. She just felt that she needed to contribute. She needed to be a member of of the church. So Nancy passed away this last August. But it's not sad knowing what's happened is that When she passed away, she was surrounded by her community from restoration. She was surrounded by friends that she had made here. So we rejoice knowing that she's in heaven right now, worshiping the Lord, and she's in heaven right now, giving everything that she has back to the Lord. And we see that. that. And so I'll be the first to say that our church isn't the same without her. But church, this is what we as a church are to be. We're to give everything we have, everything we are to the community that God has placed us in because we belong to the family of God. Our gospel identity doesn't just expect us to be in community. Our gospel identity expects us to pursue unity within our community. But here's the rub. We're not just expected to be in community We're to strive for unity in all things. Thankfully, uh, we're not left to figure out what unity means. Listen to what Jesus says in John 17, 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. So the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you have loved me. Did you catch that? Jesus' desire for us, his family, is to be one. We are one because of Christ. We are one right now. Because of the ministry of Christ. So we must continue to live out the identity that Christ has already made us. And our aim for Christian unity is twofold. We are to give glory to God in loving each other, and we are to be a witness to the world. This is the purpose of our oneness. But what does this unity look like? 
to recognize that unity is not conformity. We're not supposed to look the same. We're not supposed to think the same. We're not supposed to act the same. But yet we strive for the same gospel. We strive for the same Christ. The reality is that God has created every person differently. So unity is learning to love other members in the family of God in spite of differences. I recently read the story of the 1936 men's rowing team. Fantastic book. Um, the, The men's rowing team from the University of Washington. They overcame massive differences. They overcame social issues. They came, overcame uh, inexperience. They overcame uh, relational differences. They even overcame uh, natu- or natural differences. Or, or, sorry, they overcame natural problems. They were put in the furthest lane against a strong headwind. And so they had to overcome that as a team. And so for four years, these coaches at at this college recognized the greatness that was there. They recognized that this team had the ability to win, not just at the collegiate level, but at the Olympic level. But what's the problem? The team didn't get along. They, They didn't like each other. They couldn't work past some of their differences. And so the team was just good but they could never become great with those differences. But we know that they won the gold medal, so what happened? They had to have a mental change. So in the spring of 36, the team finally recognized what was holding them back. They had been rowing for themselves. They had been spending all of their time, all of their effort, so that so that they could get the medal for themselves as individuals. What happened was they realized in order for them to succeed, they needed to row for the other eight men in the boat. They had to let all of their personal differences go in order for the other eight men to succeed. And that's why they won gold. And so they rowed as one. That's exactly what we see that Christ desires for us today in the church, his church, that we be one. That the unity we in, that we have in Christ, it grows us together. As Christians, we have no other option in regards to our faith. Uh, so, at, at, in this church, at any church, any time that we go anywhere, it's easy for us to be, to be thinking of ourselves as we come to church. What can I get from this church? What can, how can this church serve me? But this is not what we are called to as Christians. We are called to come to a church and say, what can I contribute to this church? How can I spur other people on towards growth? And so I, the reality is, is that we can't be thinking about the needs of ourselves, but we need to be thinking about the needs of others. And this is what a healthy community looks like. And so in order to have that healthy community, we must live and serve as one body. So where does that leave us? If the Christian aim is unity, then the only option we have is we need to pursue unity while living in community. We see even Paul says the same thing in Ephesians 4 when he says, I 
Therefore, a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Every aspect of Christianity calls us to strive for that perfect unity, to strive for that perfect unity with other believers. Not only that, we're expected to continue to maintain that unity. It's a feat that's easier said than done, right? But how do we actually accomplish unity? How do we pursue unity? And so unity requires intentionality and humility. But if we're living in unity within our community, we see three clear expectations of us. First, we see that the family of God is our family. And so Hebrews 10.25 says this, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. Our natural tendency is to pull away from church. There's too much pain. There's too much hypocrisy. There's too much going on that I don't want to deal with. There's a real fear that we all share We can't let people into our lives because we're going to get hurt, because we're going to get burned. So while there is no perfect church right now, uh, we all still need the family of God. We all need, uh, we are all in need of God's grace. Listen, I've been there. There was a time in my life when I hated the church. There's a time in my life when I wanted nothing to do with the church. I hated uh, that God instituted the church. I was angry at God. I was angry at everything that was Christian. And I lived like that for five years. I just bottled that all up. Yet, God in his love and grace brought me back to a church through very specific discipline. And I noticed something that I had never seen before. Not saying that it wasn't there before, but when, you are, when, it, when, when, when it's missing, you pick up on those things more. What I had noticed was that Christians were loving each other. Again, I believe that this is true of all churches, that Christians do love each other in all churches. Um, there's, there's some issues that I had to deal with. And so looking and seeing Christians love each other well, did two things. softened my heart. And it changed my mind on what the church is. And so, the gospel moved me from being hard-hearted towards the things that God loves and to see the church for for how God sees it. And the same thing that, that happens in the world that we see that God uses the love of other believers to be the most evangelical tool that we have. The Lord uses the love of each other to grow his kingdom. So I believe now more than ever that the church, the family of God, is one of the most revolutionary things the world will ever see. Again, Jesus says that the world will know that you are my disciples by the love you have for one another. 
So we must continue to meet together, to grow in love for each other, and to grow in unity with each other. So we need to pursue unity within our community. There's more to our family than learning to love each other. There's more to our family than being present for each other. We need to push each other to be more. So we see the second expectation of the family of God is that the family of God pushes each other to be better. Hebrews 10.24 says, And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. This means that we have to give thought. This consider means that if we aren't being intentional to make this happen, it's not going to happen. The consider is is not something that we can just kind of chew on and think on. This consider calls us to action. And so to consider others means to take the focus off of ourselves and put the focus on other believers. Christianity is not about me. Our gospel identity has changed our hearts to be givers rather than takers. In the Christian community, we understand what the greatest commandment means. It's to love God and to love others. We're expected to love God as the first and greatest commandment, as we see in the Old Testament, as we see that Jesus says this is the greatest commandment, to love God. And then he says the second greatest commandment is this, to love others. And so it's in Christian community that we can learn what the second commandment actually is. We can learn how to do that. And so God deeply loves the church. And as we come to love God, we are going to love the things that God loves also. And God loves the church. But the reality is is that loving other believers makes us better Christians. Because we are learning how to love people as God loves them. We are learning to love people in spite of our differences. We are learning to love people even though they may not look like us, talk like us, act like us, vote like us, or any of that, but that we are are called to love people the way that God loves people. So being part of the family of God grows us as as being better lover of people. But the family of God also pushes us to be a better spouse, pushes us to be better parents, pushes us to be better students, to be better workers. It pushes us to be uh, just better in our community. It pushes us to be more patient, more kind, more long-suffering with everybody. But we can truly be better because of the work that Christ has already done for us on the cross. And we can be better because of the ongoing ministry of Christ daily. But we also see Another reason that we're to be in community, because there are 54 one another, uh, one another commands throughout the New Testament. They are telling us how to think about the family of God, how to live with the family of God. But they tell us how to be in community. They, see, they say things like, love one another, bear one another's burdens, pray for one another, uh, um, <clears throat> encourage one another. And so we see number of these one another's commandment or another's commandments to to uh, greet, to greet one another with a holy kiss so we're commanded to greet each other with a holy kiss and so there's that that's fun 
But my personal favorite is Romans 12.10. Outdo one another in showing love and honor. It kind of sparks my competitive spirit. Like, you bring me a meal, I'm going to make you a better meal. Just to show you that I love you, that I care for you. Or you bring me a nice T-bone steak, I'm going to make you a filet mignon. It, it, it almost spurs us onto a healthy competitive spirit where we are trying and striving to outdo one another in love and honor. And so these one another statements are designed to guide Christian living within the community. And God ordains that all Christians to be in a church community where each member gives care for each other. And this is the care that we have received specifically from Christ as we've received comfort, as we receive care, as we receive love from Christ, we pour that back into other people. And so uh, Christ is designed, uh, yeah, so we, we, we are, are, are to give care and love to other believers. But we best spur each other on to love and good works when we read and understand the rest of Hebrews 25 and through a continual encouragement of the hope we have in Christ. The third expectation shows us the family of God encourages us to look to Christ. This is what Hebrews says, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. The heart of this passage, Christ calls all of us, all members of a local church, to consider the health of the body of Christ. It's not the sole responsibility of Pastor Kevin and our elders and myself and our church leadership to, uh, we're not solely responsible for the health and, and, and growth of restoration. It's all on us. So every person who calls restoration their home is expected to pursue a healthy body. We are expected to pursue and maintain unity with each other is that every believer is to take up the ministry of encouragement. It's not, well, this person is gifted, so they're going to be taking up encouragement. But we are all called to take up the ministry of encouragement. So more than that, the gospel pushes us to think about loving others, not like us. If we notice someone drifting, it's all of our responsibility to reach out to that member But it's not, the ministry of encouragement is not for someone when when things are going wrong. But all members are expected to come alongside each other, to cheer each other on, to rejoice with each other, to love each other. Sunday morning gatherings are so crucial for the formation of our faith. We come together. We worship together. we uh, uh, We hear instruction from the word of God together. But it's in community that our faith is able to grow more. So it's critical for us as believers to be intentional to meet with other believers during the week. But why do we do this? We do this because Christ is coming back. Every day is closer to Christ's return than the day before. We are not only to, uh, every, 
So it's only in community that we can see uh, just, it's in, it's in community that we can spur each other on and we can encourage each other. And we can just point each other back to Christ. The purpose of our gatherings is to remind each other of the hope that we have in Christ. Remind each other of the reason why we exist as Christians. To remind each other of the power of Christ each and every day. We are to be so focused on Christ as a community that we are pointing each other back to Christ always. Because at the end of the day, it is Christ himself who gives us power. It is Christ himself who gives us power to to be a church. But we also see that in community is where we can exercise the gifts that God has given us for the growth of the church and for the glory of God. It's truly only in community that we understand what we've been given in Christ. And we can understand the unity we have in Christ. And so only in community can we truly grow our faith and learn what it means to, be sacrific- to, to sacrificially love people. 1 John 3.16 tells us, By this we know love. Uh, he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. This is, Christ is defining love. Christ is defining love through his sacrifice. And so Christ is saying, because I have given you everything, the expectation is that you give everything you have to love other, to love other brothers and sisters. The Christian experience calls us to continually give everything we have for others. And Christ calls us to bring everything we have for the good and flourishing of others. And so community starts with unity, but unity begins with humility. And we don't have what we need. Or that we, we um, the humility is just having that attitude where we are, are, are sacrificially loving others more than ourselves, where we are constantly thinking about others. So pursue unity while living in community. The pursuit of unity leads to one of the most profound truths in all human history. It's in the church that we see the inclusion of all peoples, of all tribes, of all tongues, of of all nations under one purpose, the praise and adoration of God. And it's in our church services. And we get a glimpse of something greater to come. And that is the final restoration of broken community. See, our church family now is a picture or a glimpse of a perfect family to come. And what I love, just reading throughout the New Testament, that Christians have always been given a glimpse into into what heaven's going to be like. We are always given this image of how God is working. And we're shown through all throughout the New Testament uh, to to expect uh, what to expect in the kingdom coming. But as God's people, as, as God's kingdom now, we get glimpses of heaven every time that we are meeting together. The community now that we share is a glimpse of the even greater community we'll share in heaven. 
joy and love we've experienced with other believers pales in comparison to the community that's coming. As I look forward to the hope of heaven, I'm in awe and wonder at what God has chosen, that God has chosen to share his tremendous kingdom with us. I look forward to the day that friendships and relationships that we forged here now will be perfected in heaven. I look forward to the day when I can be reunited with Nancy Hyman and have perfect community with her, fellowship and, and, and just sacrificially love her. And what we see is that the community come, there will be no more sin. There'll be no more brokenness, no more bitterness, no more jealousy, no more envy, no more selfishness. The more we strive to love the community that God has placed us in, the more we see glimpses of, of heaven. Church, we cannot miss out on the community that God has for us. At Restoration, we offer multiple ways to find community. Sunday mornings are so important for our faith. But I want to encourage you to join a life group. We've been saying that a changed life happens on Sunday, but lasting change happens in community. It's in these life groups that we learn to, to love each other. Our life group leaders do a fantastic job at cultivating relationships, cultivating community, and, and they're designed specifically for us to live out our faith. Pastor Kevin and I would be more than happy to help you navigate what life group would work best for you. If you found a community in a life group, praise God. If you haven't, I want to invite you to, to, to find community on one of our Sunday morning serve teams. We work diligently to, to create community in these serving teams. It's more than completing a task. It's more than completing a project. It's life formative. But it's also one of the areas in which we can exercise those spiritual gifts for the body that God has given us. And so we do that, not for our benefit, but for the benefit of other believers. And some of you may be hearing, you're like, yeah, I've done that. I've joined a life group. Yeah, I've joined a Sunday morning surf team, but I'm still not feeling connected. Sometimes the best way to get connected with another believer, invite them out for a meal. Spend time just getting to know them, getting to know their heart, getting to know why they're here, getting to know just what God has done in their life. And so I want to, I want to challenge you to do that. Invite someone you don't know out for, out for a meal. Get to know them. But also, we have our family meal next, next Sunday. And last year, it was my first family meal at Restoration. And I sat with the walls. I was newer to Restoration. And just sitting down and, and hearing their heart and learning who they are really made me love them more. So you'd be surprised at how well you can connect with another believer or another person just in a short amount of time. But as we strive for community, we need to recognize that again, unity is 
only possible because of the work of Christ. And it's in Christ that we are unified with each other right now. Christian life is a process. It must take us a lifetime to unpack what that means for us. Church, pursue unity while living in community. Pray for